Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday, and I am joined today by Bill Arsenault of Movie Going with Bill. Hey guys, what's what's going on? Always a pleasure to be on Swamp Flicks. You are our official festival correspondent. I have anointed you so. I'm very happy every time you come back on here. We probably haven't talked on the podcast since Overlook, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think I think it was since Overlook. Yeah, uh, I like being the festival correspondent, but uh, I, I got to say, some years it's it's better than others. You know, when it comes to uh, festival selections and my patience with uh, festivals, <laughs> I rather like festivals. Of course, every, every critic loves them. You know, you go to them. It's it's almost like a fun convention, you know, it's uh, or a conference or something. So many different things to check out, but uh, that can be a mixed bag, you know. And and on top of that, it, timing, you know, you, the schedule. Sometimes there's crossover, and you have to pick one over the other, and you know, so uh, it, it's it can be a little bit of a drag. But I'm happy to be here to talk New Orleans Film Fest, which was one week of in-person screenings, and then a second week of virtual screenings like trailing after all the in-person stuff ended yeah and to be honest i took it pretty light this year i went to a few documentaries in person and i saw our main topic movie with a full crowd on closing night which was really fun but (laughs) i didn't really push myself this year to like cram in as many movies as possible i was gonna go to the world well i don't know if it was the world premiere but i was gonna go to the premiere of uh of the main topic movie at the uptown britannia but on the same day just a few hours before that they were going to do a press screening for american fiction at the same theater and i was like do i really want to do a double feature you know (laughs) i was like yeah i kind of do but something ended up coming up and i couldn't i couldn't make it but um i felt bad about that because i was like man i really want to see miles doliak in person you know i i just reviewed his movie open which uh, came out uh, recently and uh, I thought it was very good. And he was very happy about my review. We have a fun little history with each other. And uh, he's such an, such a very fun and intense actor. I was like, man, how is he in person? And I see all his Facebook posts and he, it's nothing but him drinking daiquiris with his wife. Who is that? Who's miles Doliak? Miles Doliak. He's a filmmaker and and actor. Uh, He, he's a Gulf South master of the macabre is what I call him. He's done movies like uh, uh, The Dinner Party, which kind of has a cannibalistic cult involved in it. Uh, Very good movie, though. I I really dug it. He's got a nice sense of humor about things. Uh, He stars in supporting roles a lot in uh, big-time movies. He played the cop in uh, the the main topic movie. Oh. The one who was tripping on acid. Okay, very funny performance. I'm very excited to talk about that. Very very (laughs) funny performance. Usually he's a little more subdued than that but it's still intense but of course he had to be amped up a little bit because he got high on drugs in the film (laughs) so you know that that was part of the character uh but yeah he's a cool guy uh cool cat i actually wrote a bad review of of the first movie of his that i saw hollowed ground and uh we chatted about it on facebook and he was it was very awkward at first but i i he sent me his other movies and was like dude i think you'd really like them and I ended up loving them. I was like, hell yeah, this, this is the kind of stuff that I, I crave. Very funny and very uh, <laughs> very disgusting at times, too. Yeah, he, he's into weird shit. I like that. Well, we will cycle back to Miles Doliak eventually. Uh, in the meantime, <laughs> did you have any like highlights from the festival besides 
off ramp, which we will eventually get to. Yes, the main topic. Uh, yeah, I had a few. Um, I, there was one movie that I didn't, I didn't hate, but I, I didn't really feel like it was particularly good, despite anticipating it. This isn't a highlight, but I just wanted to briefly mention it. It was a short film called Burnt uh, Rue. It was about a, uh, it was like set during the civil rights movement about a young woman who's making a rue for her gumbo. And it's kind of a representation of uh, her mother and uh, the lessons her mother passed on to her and kind of like her being haunted by certain things in her past. And uh, I don't know, it, it, it just wasn't, uh, I guess it didn't live up to what it's, uh, it was trying to achieve, uh, which I think was a certain sentimentality towards, you know, generational uh, passing the torch from one side to the next. And then, uh, you know, fighting for a better future, stuff like that. And uh, I don't know, it was just kind of boring, I, I ultimately felt. That was the only one that I didn't particularly like in full. And I felt kind of, it was one of those ones where you feel bad that you didn't like it as much. You know, like you, you go into a movie, you want to love a movie, no matter what. Uh, even if it's like the Human Centipede 3, you want to come out of it loving it. I hated that movie. That might be my most hated film of all time, actually. <laughs> Seriously? You too? Yeah. Okay. Really, really excruciating experience. My most hated film is uh, a Brian De Palma movie um, called Redacted. It was uh, about the Iraq War. And uh, I was like, this, this is just up its own ass. You know, and, and I really hated it because I have so such respect for Brian De Palma. I was like, what were you doing? But yeah, Human Centipede 3 ranks up there too with, with a lot of the worst things I've ever seen that I find truly hate-filled. I would rather not watch again. You know, kind of like, uh, what, what was that? That's a Serbian film. Kind of like a Serbian film. I, I, I can appreciate that it was well-made, sort of, but it was just so vile that, you know, it's like, I don't want to watch that again. You know, screw that. But none of these are like Burnt Rue. Burnt Rue is okay. <laughs> not to offend the filmmakers, not to, you know, do anything like that. It just didn't feel like it went all the way. But that was the only movie from the fest that I felt maybe didn't, you know, hit all the marks. That being said, I do have two highlights that I want to um, talk about. Uh, one, the first one is a, <laughs> is a funny little film uh, by Sam Fox called, uh, I guess I can say it, Fucking Nuts. Uh, it's not the full... The title is not the full F-U-C-K. It's F-C-K apostrophe N, nuts. And with a title like that, obviously it brings up a lot of images and a lot of ideas. Like, um, this must be crazy, this must be bonkers, you know, that kind of thing. And indeed it is, uh, because this movie, I believe, was produced by uh, local North Shore New Orleans uh, filmmaker and general awesome weirdo Joe Badon. Uh, he's the, his current film is The Wheel of Heaven. He previously did uh, uh, oh my goodness, I can't think of the title, but it was ripped off by Horse Girl. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. They got inside my ear. I remember when that controversy happened and uh, I, personally I didn't see it, but it, there's some, but it's not necessarily like full blown. I think that 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 writer was just you know making a superficial argument, you know. But that's that's fine. You know, tenuous connections, that's cool. Whatever. Uh, he's a great, he's a good filmmaker. He's very fun. And whenever his name is attached to something, I think you know that it's going to be uh, a pretty wild trip. 
Uh, the movie stars uh, Vincent Stauba, who was in a short film of Joe's Badon's called uh, The Blood of the Dinosaurs, where he played a uh, child, a children's TV host that was that had kind of a disturbing stare. You know, like he looked into the camera and it was like he was looking into your soul. You know, it was one of those kind of actors, you know. Uh, here he plays the boyfriend of this uh, kind of stunted young woman, by which I mean uh, she's maybe like a a woman child, you know, kind of like a man child. She's almost like, you know, got that childlike, you know, mindset and everything. And off the bat in the film, there's this uh, kind of foreboding uh, <laughs> disaster that's about to come. You know, like there's this sense that something isn't right. They meet outside her house. He's he's talking about like, oh, I'd like to meet your family and everything. And then she vomits. And uh, it's weird. He scrapes the vomit off the, the stoop with his hand, his bare hand. And you're supposed to treat this like it's normal. <laughs> like, oh, now let's move on to the next part of the conversation. I'm thinking like, oh, my God, this is the direction the movie is going in. <laughs> and I loved it. I love that. I love that like uh, nonchalant, you know, feel. You know where it's like something gross just happened, but hey, let's let's go on to something else. It's like it's like if if two characters are making out and one of them burps in the other other's face, but they kind of ignore it. It's that John Waters sensibility from the early films, where like if everyone's a freak, no one's a freak. Yeah, you know? it's kind of it's kind of like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the catch to this film is that her pet, he, she's kind of afraid and embarrassed by her parents, and as it turns out, her parents. Uh, have a close connection to the second word in the title nuts. And, um, subsequently, uh, the boyfriend becomes very afraid and, uh, I don't want to give too much away cause I think hopefully this movie comes out in some form, but, uh, <laughs> let's just say the twist is very funny, very amusing and gets very gross. I'm sure there's already like images popping in, in, in people's minds right now as to, what does he mean by nuts? Is he referring to the food? Is he referring to something else? You know, uh, or is it just about being crazy? It's kind of all of the above, but uh, it, it's a very funny payoff. And uh, uh, suffice to say, it was a it was a big surprise because I had no idea what this was about going into it. I just knew the title. I didn't even know the connection to Joe Bonham when when that popped up in the credits. I was like, of course, that makes total sense. So uh, I gave it four out of five stars. I really enjoyed it. It's a quick nine minutes. And um, yeah, hopefully people have a lot of fun with it if they if it ever becomes more uh, readily available. The poster art has very cool, like uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse, kind of like psychedelic look. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, it, it's 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 very funny because it doesn't it's it, there's there's a little bit of a children's television type aspect to the film where it's kind of, you know, it's weird. A lot of those children's television shows, looking back in hindsight when you're an adult, are very weird. Even Mr. Rogers, as much as I love that guy and find him very, you know, wholesome and, and kind and everything, some of that stuff he did, you know, could be taken in the in, in a different manner. Uh, then you got Mr. Wizard. You got, uh, <laughs> uh, what was that show? Uh, Puffin Stuff? Uh, HR Puffin Stuff. HR Puffin Stuff, yeah. Stuff that was clearly, like, made by people who were high, you know, and they were just coming up with weird stuff. How dare you besmirch the names of Sid and Marty Croft? 
They never no, touched marijuana once in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> I love Sid and Marty Croft. They, uh, Electra Woman and Diner Girl was the shit. Uh, <laughs> the fact they even did a, a little web series slash feature film about them that was kind of brought them into the modern day, and I really love that movie. It's worth noting that uh, one of the biggest, or like at least buzziest, horror titles of the year was Skin and Marink, which is basically like entirely hinged on children's media becoming like kind of creepy when it's taken out of context and like slowed down and you know specifically public domain children's yeah well <laughs> that's what they could yeah. afford yeah that's what they could afford but they it, it ended up being a great film in my opinion one of the one of my favorites of the year and uh i don't know how you feel about that but um i liked it a lot yeah okay okay yeah it's a weird title to say skin of a rink <laughs> uh but that's part of the appeal you know i think i've been using it as a verb a lot lately like if i watch like an old horror movie where all of a sudden the doors and windows disappear i'm like oh damn it they got skin of a rinked <laughs> <laughs> and then that tell that that kid's telephone pops up really yeah. quickly Bing! it's almost like the bird in citizen kane at the very end when, uh, <laughs> jump scare it, the jump scare you know to wake everybody up uh <laughs> so the other movie i want to highlight uh another short film a uh, documentary called Chokehold, Drag Wrestlers Do Deutschland. Yeah, it's. Uh, I had no idea about the subculture going in and well before, you know, like, uh, I, I know, you know, drag has a lot of different, you know, components to it. And, uh, you know, bur burlesque and uh, I think burlesque is related to drag, right? I don't I don't know all these. Uh... Uh, they, they both have like a cabaret aspect where there's individual acts sort of like introduced by an MC. Uh, Chokehole has, um, when you go see their show, they actually have kind of a cabaret presentation where there are like wrestling matches, but in between there's like kind of like strip teases and, uh, okay. little comedy acts and things in between the wrestling bits as well. Yeah. And, uh, I was very surprised to find that they were doing this in new Orleans or that's kind of the, where it originated and, um, out of like an, a warehouse, that wasn't necessarily up to code they didn't have a license with this with the state uh sports uh bureau or whatever they didn't have a license which is funny because it's not i mean technically it is wrestling but they're not really it, it's like a, a different form of prof professional wrestling they're they're not even really doing professional wrestling they're just kind of performing professional wrestling which is funny because professional wrestling is also a performance They've gotten more intense over the years. When they first started, it was basically like drag pantomime where they would do, they would take a couple bumps or whatever on the mat, but it wasn't as intense as it is now where they actually go off the top rope a little bit. Uh, they do more of like full choke slam kind of like maneuvers. I, I oh, believe wow. they trained a little bit with uh, Wildcat out in Metairie. Oh, yeah. To like train up and like actually take the sport a little more seriously than they did when they first started. That's pretty cool. I'm heavily invested in Chokehole. Um, <laughs> if you can't tell, like I, I've been to like a bunch of their earlier shows, <laughs> and at the time, it kind of blew my mind. Like walking into that, like you said, kind of decrepit warehouse space, uh, which honestly they show in the daylight in this documentary, and I did not realize how run down it was. Like. At night with the like stage lights going and like music pumping and people dressed in like glittery costumes and stuff like it, it looked pretty fabulous, honestly, in comparison <laughs> to how it looks in the documentary, which I guess by itself is like a metaphor in some way, uh, <laughs> in some fashion. No one wants to do drag in the daylight either. Like uh, the, the stage lights help, you know, um, <laughs> but 
you know, at the time, this was, I, oh God, I don't remember how long ago this was. It was not 10 years ago yet, but, you know, it was a good while ago. At the time, I had a lot of thoughts in my head about gender performance in drag and in wrestling because pre-COVID, that's like what my social life was outside the house. You know, I was going to the movies, but a lot of the times I would go to these like drag shows that always, or there was this um, church turned into like a theater by my house that used to do drag shows on Mondays. Um, And I would also go to the Wildcat shows in Metairie pretty regularly. And it was like watching two sides of the same coin. Like they were both very exaggerated forms of like gender performance kind of turned into like a living cartoon. And I kind of saw them as like the same thing. And so seeing people meld that together. And then on top of that, it goes a step further where the stagecraft is made to look like vintage B movies from the eighties and nineties. It's got this kind of like neon slime patina to it. Everything's like these hand built B movie type sets. Uh, very artificial, very like John Waters and references again, Pee Wee's Playhouse style aesthetic to it. Walking into that show was like seeing everything that I was thinking about art, like all kind of melded into one product, one yeah. stage show. And I th- literally had the thought like, there's nothing for me to achieve in my life because it's already been done. And like, <laughs> the work was so clear headed and so well organized as a thought that like I had nothing really to contribute to critical thinking anymore. (laughs) Like that's, that's how much chokehold like meant to me the first few times I went to see it. The the performances. Yeah. Right. And it's gotten to the point where I don't really go anymore. So I guess I got out of it what I wanted, or maybe it's just like so popular now it's hard to get in there. The last time I went, we saw Susan Sarandon and Eric Warheim and like, really? like there, I believe there's like a camera crew from like ESPN three or some shit. Like it, it had gotten really popular and like, um, you know, it was like a hot ticket all of a sudden. Oh, I see. So it's like one of those things where it's, it's like, it's, I had a friend like that who, um, we would, we would talk about Kubrick films and all of a sudden he, he turned against them, you know, like because they were too popular. And uh, amongst his little circle of friends, our circle of friends, and we'd be like, why are you a contrarian all of a sudden? You can still admit that these are great films. He's like, nah, nah, Clockwork Orange sucks. Oh, I wouldn't say I'm against it. I still think it's very cool what they're doing. It's just, um, I am a 37-year-old man. Uh, I'm not <laughs> I'm not up for the hassle of like elbowing 20-year-olds out of the way to get to a, you know, gin and soda at a warehouse drag show anymore. Like... <laughs> You know, I don't need to fight my way up front to like watch someone dress up like a bug and do a an elbow drop. I, I I'm fine. You know, I've I've seen it. I get it. It's really fun. If it was less of a sold out, packed house environment, I would I would still be going. But it's just very popular. That it's very successful, and I'm very happy for them. I will say this movie feels like it's kind of testing the waters to go even bigger. They go to Germany, like you said, and have like a very professional pro wrestling show there. Yeah. And it feels like they come back thinking like, oh, we can make this even more legitimate 
and bigger and even more of like above board. Oh yeah, they get that um certificate or that proclamation from a state politician. Like an actual uh, sports license, right? Yeah, something like that. I think that's what I think that's what they suggested. They, I don't think they outright said it in the documentary, but but the, the it was it, it, it the, the proclamation said basically we're proud of you guys. You know, something along those lines. And I think it was implied they also got the 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 license, but yeah, it was uh <laughs> I think I agree with you in that maybe they're they're not getting all up in their head but they certainly are like let's go bigger let's go bolder you know which i mean good for them it's it's awesome that they're getting recognized for their art and you know honestly awesome that they can make money off of all this labor that they're putting into this communal show it's just like the movie itself kind of plays like an advertisement for chokehole and not really like a movie hmm. um it feels like like a tourism ad, like come to New Orleans and see this weird drag wrestling see hybrid Joe show. Ball, yeah. yeah. And like, please spend some money at some local hotels and bars while you're here. <laughs> a little bit. I can, I can see it being uh, a bit of a, it, it's someone asked me to review a film uh, a while back about Vietnam and I'm thinking, Oh, okay. A Vietnamese documentary. And I started watching it and it was very clearly the type of movie that they would send to other countries to entice people to come over like Vietnam country on the go, you know, it was some shit like that. And I, I turned it off immediately. I was like, sorry, dude, I can't review this. This is just, this is crap. You know, I, I, this is not the thing I review. Uh, Chokehold didn't really feel like that blatant. Maybe it was an advertisement from new Orleans and for itself and, and everything like that. But I did feel there was a personal touch to it. I did feel there was... They didn't get to go deep into each uh, performer's uh, thing, but or lives necessarily. They did explain a few. You know, a few of them did talk about uh, how they got into it. But more or less, I think it was telling an overall story about uh, uh, anti-prudishness and pro-creativity that uh, I rather uh, enjoyed. And I found myself smiling throughout the whole thing. I mean, it's very cool. <laughs> the whole thing yeah. is super cool. Yeah, I, I think that's what I was attracted to. Uh, maybe it was because I didn't know about this. And uh, I love pro wrestling. I, I really like drag. I think drag is fun, uh, as m most people should feel. It's a very fun thing to witness, you know. And uh, why not meld the two? That's, like, perfect. It reminded me of uh, Shakara Pro Wrestling. I don't know if you ever uh, watched Shakara, but um, back in the day, they would do uh, matches where people would dress up like bananas, or oh uh, yeah, or Godzilla or something. And they I haven't seen that, but uh, Kaju Big Battle uh, does that as well. Japan does that. Yes, they do. They do that. I believe uh, Brian Kendrick has a promotion or had a promotion. Uh, wrestling Pro Wrestling is what it was called. And uh, they, they do matches very much like Shikara and, uh, you know, weird, weirdo stuff. But but it's perfect for wrestling because wrestling is kind of a I don't think people think of it as a weird sport, quote unquote, but it is. It's very open to creative storytelling. And I think only in recent years, WWE has really gotten into that, specifically during the COVID era WrestleMania which was the weirdest WrestleMania I have ever seen. But of course it was going to be. There was no re there was no crowd. That Bray Wyatt match inside of John Cena's mind is the greatest wrestling match I've ever seen in my entire life. It, it was perfect. It was a perfect 
because they had previously they had encountered each other in New Orleans at WrestleMania 30, and that, I felt that was a great match yeah. from a storytelling point of point of view. And this is the follow up. I was like, holy crap! You know, they really nailed it. This is like this is everything you could ever dream of. You know, it reminded me of like the promos with Ultimate Warrior and the Undertaker or something. You know, and Jake the Snake, and you know those kind of things where they're like actually in a cemetery or a fake cemetery or something, and you know they're just doing their thing and it's like this this can't be real this this is totally a show but some people bought it because you know well, why why would they be lied to and other people like myself were like this is an awesome show are you kidding me saturday morning you're watching <laughs> the undertaker come out of a grave or a body bag you're watching leslie nielsen try to take try to track him down you know um that was a real thing i remember that very clearly so yeah, um, I think by embracing these cinematic and very theatrical aspects, you know, they're they're really dressing up and and giving pro wrestling more of a um, a space to, I guess, drag literally and figuratively themselves out of the attitude era and into something much more beautiful. I think, uh, and chokehold, I, I rather uh, felt was a in its own right, a beautiful little documentary, maybe not as deep as, you know, uh, as it could have been, or not even deep, maybe not as a personal as it could have been, but very fun. And uh, for me, fun goes a long way. What I would want to see, and I think when I call it an advertisement, maybe it's even an advertisement for this, but like a longer version of this project where they actually like, show some of the video packages they make for chokehold which are very psychedelic and like kind of mind melty and tim and eric style like (laughs) which you don't really get in the movie the movie doesn't really like mimic or approximate their production style it's it's a very like um inviting to like wide audiences introduction to what chokehold is yeah uh which is very good for them and I'm 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 proud that they've grown into what they are. And I should go back and see another show again because now I'm talking about it. Um <laughs> I'm remembering why I love it so much. You just brought up the whole Tim and Eric uh thing and uh I love that. I love how people are really uh in, especially like new generation of filmmakers that are just starting out on like TikTok and Instagram and stuff. They're really embracing that weird and absurdist and surreal take on visual storytelling uh this is kind of off point from chokehold maybe maybe a little associated with it but you got me thinking about this uh when the when the um what was that purple creature from um mcdonald's what's what's its name grimace grimace the grimace shakes uh people started to kids teenagers college kids whatever started doing these videos where it's like um they would drink the grimace shake and then something some horror would happen to them immediately after and it became like this 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 thing this meme it was like crime scenes of like teens like half naked (laughs) bodies covered in like purple grimace shake on the concrete and it was perfect stuff it was really weird they could make a whole little documentary about that movement and uh it's it's amazing to me because this is the kind of stuff i wished i could have done back in middle school and high school but i didn't really have the material for it the resources i just had a vhs camera uh which maybe i could have done stuff with but it wouldn't have been the same now you can do your whole production 
through a phone. You know, the, the shooting, the editing, the effects, everything. Uploading, you know, it's it's amazing. And, um, you know, I, I just I just look forward to the future of filmmaking. You know, I know, I know that's a lot to take in. At, we're, we're just talking about Chokehold, but uh, it kind of got me thinking about that after you mentioned Tim and Eric. I mean, that's what's so cool about them is they kind of are a perfect amalgamation of everything I love about art all in one package. So I I don't think, I don't think you can spiral far enough out from them. (laughs) It's like, it really is like the total package of like what DIY genre art is like. They're the Lex Luger of, uh, of that. Right. (laughs) The total package. Yeah. Also should be said, rest in peace, Bray Wyatt. One of the saddest losses this year. Oh God. Yeah. That was, that was, that came out of nowhere. Yeah, those, 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 yeah, no, I agree. Well, you did a very good job talking about only local filmmaking, and I feel like such a prick because I'm about to bring up <laughs> two movies that premiered at Sundance. That's okay. That's dude. That's totally fine. I mean, like we got we got a balance now because our main topic is a local film. Right, right. I'm kind of ruining the vibe <laughs> <laughs> on my own show. No, that, that's that's fine. That's kind of my shtick. I, I do local. I, I love local filmmaking. Um, I love talking about Hollywood South. So that's kind of my shtick, which is great because no one's getting paid to do that, you know, by a newspaper anymore. You have to like actually seek it out yourself and like sell it to other people. <laughs> and I'm having a hard time doing that, my friend. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a grim world out there. It is. Yeah. <laughs> but we're having fun. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I do good. this for pleasure. So what were the two highlights? Well, they are two movies that I've been wanting to see since people saw them at Sundance earlier this year. Uh, and I went to the theater both times uh, and they're both documentaries. And I would say probably the best two documentaries I've seen so far this year. Nice. Uh, one is called the disappearance of share height. I believe the filmmaker was one of the people who made crip camp for Netflix uh, either last year or the year before, whenever that was. Uh, yes, I believe you're right. And this is a profile of the titular share height, who was a sex researcher in the 1970s through the 1990s. She wrote three pretty major texts, uh, kind of in that Kinsey or Masters and Johnson style, uh, where she was like doing these kind of bigger revelations about like human sexual behavior that people were like kind of too afraid to study scientifically before the first wave feminist and like free love movements of that era. And, her methodology was a little unconventional because she was interested in things that did not have official funding. Like she didn't have like grants for what she was doing. It was all kind of like DIY. And she came up with this kind of like printed zine style pamphlet of sex questions. It was like a questionnaire that she mailed to in her first book to women um, and kind of just asking them how they basically achieve orgasm and like what is pleasurable about sex to them. And all these questions they might not answer over the phone in a regular survey or like to their doctor with their husband present or, you know, it was like a very intimate, direct way to reach people and ask them like what their sex lives were really like in private. And she started as a nude model um, and as a like kind of like a sex worker on the fringe of like sex as as a topic and like worked her way inward to like studying it in a scientific way through these like DIY pamphlets. And in her three books, she, in her three major texts, she 
posited three things that really pissed men off in the press. Uh, the first book, the major thing that made people very angry was the revelation that clitoral stimulation is how most women achieve orgasm, not through penetration. Oh. Her second <laughs> book revealed that men are very lonely and they don't know how to express their emotions well because they're so isolated. <laughs> I like that. How men get angry about that. <laughs> yeah, they're like, fuck you, I'm not lonely. <laughs> I'm not angry, you piece of shit. Why don't I have friends? <laughs> <laughs> right. And then her third book um, revealed that women cheat just as often as men do. Okay. These are like the big, splashy headline hot takes that like pissed a lot of people off. It got her a lot of press. Um, you know, there's tons of interview footage in the movie of her on like Oprah and Larry King and um, all these like famous talk shows just being grilled for what I would say are three pretty fairly common sense accepted knowledge factoids now. Like everyone just kind of knows these things because of this kind of work was being done half a century ago. And she was just completely torn apart by the press for daring to shake things up in that like patriarchal structure. And what you see in all of this interview footage is tons and tons of men yelling at her. And every single time the interview asks them, the interviewer like asks the men who are angry, did you actually read the book? And it's like, no, they're just reacting to the headlines. They didn't actually read her text at all. They just like, don't like that. She is like this, like, attractive, fashionable, kind of dramatically eccentric person who's willing to talk about sex openly and honestly. Uh, they like really get infuriated just by the look of her and the idea of her without actually, actually ever engaging with her work. And uh, because she didn't have like official scientific grants to do this research, they basically like discredit her to the point where she can't get jobs and flees the country and disappears. And now no one knows who she is anymore. Uh, thus the title, The Disappearance of Sheer Height. She is not as like well-remembered as Kinsey or Masters and Johnson. She's basically nothing anymore. Oh, jeez. It's a very vital movie. You know, like it has a lot going on about like how what I was thinking a lot was about how people like had these very reactionary blowback takes on headlines instead of ever reading articles anymore. Yeah. Uh, like that reaction in the media just was very clearly laid out here on top of just like, you know, the general sexism of like Western culture, uh, which, you know, is a lot more apparent now in the open in the movie as well. Yeah. This, this kind of sounds like, uh, like it's about cancel culture in a way without being about cancel culture. And I would say the difference is that the American media itself is responsible for her cancellation. Like they're like yeah. looking for a reason to discredit her, even though they're very attracted to how much attention she gets. So they're they're willing to like feed her to the wolves. Uh, the Oprah segment in particular, she is on stage, and the only other woman in the room is Oprah. Oprah has filled the entire audience with men who are like foaming mad at this woman, and she just passes around the microphone for them to like tear her down one at a time. That's fucked up, and it, it's wild. Like. It is frustrating how much discourse is boiled down to like one idea. Even me saying like those are the three things that she posited in her books. I haven't read her books, but they're all very large. I'm assuming there's a lot more information in them than like one sentence per book. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right, yeah. So 
it is about how you know these big, well thought out, common sense ideas are boiled down to these like hot button culture war talking points, and how someone has to be a target of all that anger. And yeah, the the media just really treated her in this very dismissive way. That's like a, an injustice the movie is trying to fix. Yeah. Did they did they find her? I mean, I guess that's a spoiler, but I don't. Yeah, I don't yeah. She she did not disappear in like the sense that like she like disappeared in the mountains and no one ever found the body. You know, like, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. She she went as far away from the American media as she could afford to go, <laughs> trying to get out of this like cycle of being like fed to the wolves, which is the underread American public. And she went to greener pastures where she was maybe received more warmly, but her career never really recovered from that media frenzy. I see. I see. Wow. I mean, that, that sounds like a pretty powerful story. Yeah. And there's like tons of vintage footage of her on camera, you know, speaking for herself, which, you know, a lot of documentaries struggle with that. Sometimes they have to like animate still photographs or like kind of look for like scraps of images. They can sort of like dole out, but this movie has tons of footage of Cher Height. She was in the media a lot. Uh, and you know, they make the best use of that as they can. They also have tons of her diaries, which are read by Dakota Johnson, who I think is like the one thing about the movie that doesn't really work because Cher Height is such a specific person. She has this very strange kind of soft, but fierce, sensual, but icy persona. That's very difficult to pinpoint. So like any actor trying to like, impersonate her voice next to her just kind of looks puny by comparison especially especially one that was in uh 50 shades of gray i i kind of like dakota johnson she has been in good work since 50 shades she has she has i'm just saying she she brings that with her <laughs> yeah i think that's probably why they brought the project to her she is on as an executive producer as well oh. but i i think um you know she got her own blowback from being in 50 shades and she was dismissed being in basically mainstream erotica which is not dissimilar to share heights predicament right i was gonna say like uh oh you know but the other guy what was what was the other guy's name the the actor that played opposite her jamie dornan jamie dornan yeah well he doesn't get that that kind of uh blowback does he but he's no. in it equally he's naked and he's grinding and doing all that good stuff you know I would say generally people still don't know what to do with Dakota Johnson. Like I really liked her in a bigger splash and maybe a couple other movies around that time, but like she's in this upcoming Marvel movie now and looks really (laughs) not. There's a whole meme that there's a whole meme that's already started that I absolutely love. It's, it's one line of dialogue that she says about her mom in um South studying America. spiders and South studying spiders uh and how this guy was there right before she died or something it was just the way yeah. the sentence was structured and how she said it and uh it sounds like a like a Tommy Wiseau line almost like it's, it's it just doesn't hit the ear right you know and so everyone's like posting that that quote uh and attaching it to scenes from other movies like um everything everywhere all at once uh when um the the husband character in another timeline is like uh you know in another life i would have loved uh doing laundry with you and instead they replace it with uh with that line that quote from the (laughs) from the trailer and i'm like oh that's perfect i love that and honestly i don't think she's a great fit for the share height movie either but like she's a movie star and 
attaching her name to this movie where the main subject has been erased from the public record is probably for the best, you know? Like, it can only help generate publicity for someone who's been denied publicity for the past few decades. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, and the other documentary I saw was about a badass woman who has a contentious relationship with the press as well. It's called Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni Project. Oh, I heard about this. Yeah. Uh, it got picked up by HBO. I'm not sure when it's going to be uploaded to their platform, but uh, it, it does have a distributor already. Nikki Giovanni was a civil rights activist, mostly in the form of poetry. Uh, so in the 1960s, she wrote very incendiary poems about the riots and the protests and what needed to happen in America for black men and women to be equal citizens. And she does not mince words. She's a very combative, forthright, angry protester in those times. The documentary has a lot of footage of her also in the press having these sort of like combative exchanges with everyone from like white journalists to James Baldwin, who is presumably somewhat politically aligned with her. Even they spar words back and forth because she just <laughs> has like a f- combative attitude. Sure. And then in recent years, she has become an institution. She's like interviewed on NPR, all of her books are, you know, bestsellers. She she's kind of won the fight to be taken seriously, if nothing else. And so in current times, she's living in this suburb in the middle of America, just sort of like living a somewhat comfortable life and occasionally leaving her like very calm domestic house to go out and do another round of press for whatever book she has to sell. And then at the same time she's also talking about Afrofuturism where like in a lot of her poems, she references space travel. And um, in recent years, particularly she's been fascinated with the idea of humans colonizing Mars. And she says uh, sort of in this like provocative way, you know, if we're going to send people to Mars, the people we should send are black women because they've already been forced to go to an alien planet and mate with an alien species referring to the slave trade. Uh, in the Americas. That's one hell of a way of putting it. Yeah. And all of her work is like that. It's all very like hair raising in your face, reckoning with America's past. She's, she does not mince words. And that's good. That's good. No, it's awesome. And, and also she also has like a actual kind of like sci-fi fascination with the future as well. Like when she's talking about space travel, she is making a political point with it. But she's also just kind of fascinated with like rockets and the stars and the idea of going to Mars. So this movie has like a really interesting sort of like kaleidoscopic editing style where it mixes all three of those timelines, the past, the present and the future all together. It's all in one jumble. So you get like scenes of her current life mixed with her more righteous community organizing past and her sort of like far out ideas of what space travel look like in the future. And there's just as many images of like, like outer space screensaver type imagery, like as there (laughs) is footage of like Martin Luther King and Angela Davis and James Baldwin and everyone else. Like it's all presented, you know, time is a flat circle all at like one time, her past her present and her ideas of the future. And yeah, it's just a very interesting documentary formally, 
I think I appreciated the sheer height movie slightly more just because the subject was so new to me. But formally, as far as like documentary filmmaking as an art form goes, the Nikki Giovanni movie actually tries to match her aggressive, daring style as a poet in its own documentary filmmaking style. Like it actually tries to like match her energy a little bit. It doesn't get anywhere near as like essential or provocative as she is, but it at least like does justice to how alive her work is both when she was an angry youth. And now that she's like old and settled, uh, her work is still very like well-observed and sharp. And the movie tries to like find her where she is on that level. Well, that's great. Yeah. We'll have to check it out. And I guess that was my frustration with chokehold a little bit. It's like <laughs> the subject is so that. cool, but it doesn't like match the subjects like psychedelia or transgression the same way that the going to Mars movie tries to match Nick Giovanni's attitude. Yeah. Or like provocateur stances. Gathering of the Juggalos. Shangri-La. For one weekend a year, we can let go. Live among our own. And get fucked up, bro. Can't keep wilding out like we're kids, Silas. We got me locked up in the first fucking place. What about your Juggalo fam? Scotty D, Jimmy Soda, Mankini? Butthole Ben. You want to disappoint Butthole Ben? Well, I was commending you for going out and seeing as many local films as you could. I did see one, which was the feature length <laughs> kind of road trip, gross out comedy called Off Ramp. I don't even know. I mean, comedy makes sense, but I would say it's a, a dramatic comedy. You know, it's got that it's got kind of both to it. You know, It does have an indie drama like tinge to it, uh, especially in the second half. Uh, where yeah. it starts t- taking the emotions very seriously. But uh, it, it is kind of like a traditional stoner road trip comedy, <laughs> buddy comedy Definitely. dynamic. Uh, the, I guess the main gimmick, if that's the genre we're working in here, is that the road trip is to the gathering of the Juggalos. Which, if people aren't uh, familiar with, is a uh, major celebration for the fans of the Insane Clown Posse and the music genre of uh, horror rap. And I don't think the movie has much insane clown posse, like actual stuff in it. Like um, I, I'm sure that stuff's like expensive to license, especially for something that appears to be like a micro budget, locally funded indie. Right. You know, there is a ukulele cover of miracles over the end credits. And I believe miracles itself might appear in the movie once. Yeah. I love that. I love how they did that, uh, that cover of it. At the, at the end. That was a nice little touch. Which is a nice little indie drama, like hat tip to, like you were saying, uh, there's like a sentimentality of the movie as well as it being a, a comedy. Uh, but I do mean the the gross out part sincerely. Like one of the things that stood out to me when flipping through what was like offered at this year's festival was the sheer number of content warnings for off ramp on the yeah, film yeah, festival it, website. It does have quite like they, they throw in words like rape, incest, this, that. Um, I'll read it out. Sexual assault, abuse, child abuse, pedophilia, incest, animal death, 
self-harm, violence, abduction, death, childbirth, miscarriages, abortion, blood, mental illness, ableism, sexism, misogyny, racism, classism. The movie is very aggressively over the top <laughs> in its like gore and, you know, sort of gnarly topics. But even those top like it, it's it, it, yeah, the, the 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 content warning, I get it, but it's it's more like they're not actually showing as much as you think they're going to show. You know, it's it's more like either implied or flat out stated, but you're not actually seeing the acts, which is a good thing. You know, you don't have to see the fucking acts. You know, you can just, you know, it's them saying it is enough. But I think maybe the content warning is a little going a little too far. You know, as a warning, like a hey, warning, they bring up these topics. I'm like, well, we can we can deal with it. We're adults. I want to disagree with you there a little bit just because. There were a couple walkouts at the screening. Um, were there really? <laughs> yeah, because there is there is a couple scenes. I will say the word surgical gore without getting into too much detail. Yeah, uh, I, I can imagine that. Reasons. I can imagine that that scene definitely. Uh, well, actually, there were two surgical gore scenes that I, right. I, I think about it. But I can imagine the one that I think you're thinking of getting uh, some walkouts. But e- even that one, I mean, this movie is like a weird hat trick. It, it pulls off gore on occasion when it ha- when it does have gore, which you know is mostly in the second half. Uh, it, it pulls off the horror aspect here and there, and the uh, graphic drama aspect here and there, with a sort of odd beauty, you know, uh, payoff, an odd beautiful payoff to uh, to those scenes. It's almost like um, you have to go through it. And then on the other end is is a lot of light, you know. The scene I don't want to also I don't want to get into all these different uh, specific scenes and the details uh, in them, but the surgical uh, gore thing that we were just kind of alluding to, you know, uh, we're not saying flat out what it is, but there is a beauty to the end of it. It is so over the top that it's funny too. Like it's, it is an excruciating over, yeah. image to watch, but by putting you through it as long as it does, it becomes a morbid joke. And then at the end, there is a, a sentimental note that is both somewhat ironic, but also very sincere in a very juggalo friendly way. Like the idea <laughs> yeah. of, the juggalo culture is this idea of like found family with anyone that you recognize as a fellow juggalo. It's like a built-in community where it doesn't matter where you two came from. It just matters that you're both juggalos and you're instantly kismet because of that. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting road trip movie. That's, that's for sure. And, uh, but I, but I, I, I'm just going to say it. I flat out love this movie. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I can really compare it to a lot of, recent films uh i can compare it to some road trip films you know in that this movie definitely follows that formula of it's about the journey not the destination but at at the same time this this movie has its own language you know which i i guess is the juggalo language you know they're they're these these two the main two characters uh trey and silas they they speak in a dialogue that uh, made me laugh but also i felt very um connected to in in a weird way uh it was like i understood what they were saying or trying to say to each other but it was just funny and how like you said a second ago sincere they were 
how genuine they were. It, it felt very natural for them to say things like, hey, man, don't mess with Butthole Bob. Don't get on his bad side, you know, stuff like that. Or they use vulgar words to describe simple things or phrases, you know, like, uh, uh, what was it? What was the, the main one that Silas kept saying about the, uh, the gathering? It was the it gathering was, provides. Yeah. It was something like, like that. It was the gathering provides or it was, or no, he, he would also do the, uh, I scream, you scream. We all scream for ice cream. It's a pretty good mantra. Especially when you're going through some like traumatic stuff together, you know, it 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 brings about down by law, you know that that scene where they're going, I scream, you scream, we'll scream for ice cream. Yeah, you know, I don't know if that was a direct influence, but it, it reminded me of that a little bit. I was trying to come up with like a white trash road trip canon of movies that this reminded me of. Uh, <laughs> the ones I wrote down were like Natural Born Killers, yeah, Freeway, okay ready to rumble and uh because i just saw it for the first time recently the doom generation ready to rumble makes sense uh <laughs> yeah. in a way although i would say that that's more toilet humor you don't think there's toilet humor in this movie there there is but i wouldn't say it's like it's it's like on the level of the Farrelly brothers you know it's not stupid the cop they dosed with lsd because he's on their tail miles doliak yeah uh he keeps asking who put piss in his dick because he can't figure out why he needs to keep peeing every three minutes while he's tripping. Pretty funny. Okay, okay, fine. Yeah, but uh, that, that, okay, uh, maybe I glossed over I that believe there's part, also but... multiple colostomy bags on screen. Not always no, played for a laugh. There was one colostomy bag and then one empty one that he was replacing the, oh, there uh, you go. the used one. And really, that was, that was not meant to be necessarily comedic. It wasn't like in Dumb and Dumber 2. When um, Jeff Daniels was replacing the pee bag that with the catheter, and and he puts he, he holds the used one in his mouth, you know, like like because he can't do right. everything with both hands, and uh, <laughs> it's just natural to him. But that that was funny in a toilet humor way. This was funny in a more like bizarre kind of like he's a juggalo and he's saying rap lyrics to his to his grandma, but he can tell he loves her enough to to care for her. You know, it, it, it's like it shows you a, a, a different side while also uh, understanding that this is still kind of bizarre and weird from normal, you know, like what we think of as normal. You know, it's still kind of odd. Like like one of the scenes I loved uh, in this movie was uh, when they go to the gas station and uh, the the gas station attendant is David Jensen. That's the actor's name. I wrote an article about him that I and I called him the Sage of Hollywood South because he has this very um, he has this look of someone with a lot of wisdom and a lot of uh, humble care to him, like someone who could, you know, you can almost imagine as a father figure in a way. Well, here in this scene, you know, he's he um, says he I think he says something like he dislikes clowns. Like, you remind me of a clown. I don't like clowns. And he goes into the story about how when he was a kid at his birthday party, his mom got him a clown, and then he found the clown having sex with his mom, and it scared the piss out of him. And meanwhile, while he's saying all this stuff, the Trey, who's buying all this Fago Cola, which is a big staple amongst Juggalos and the Insane Clown Posse, I mean, these guys are dedicated to the to the Juggalo lifestyle. That's They're almost like... I don't want to say they're posers, but it's almost on the surface poser, but then you get to know them 
and they're really into it. No, it's their entire life. It's it's a religion. It's that it's their thing. Yeah, and and they he's buying all this stuff, and he looks out. He's not even really paying attention to what the gas attendant is saying. He's looking out the window and he's seeing his friend Silas, who's who's like playing around with the 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 gas pump, making it look like it's his dick. And uh, and, <laughs> and Trey's just like, uh huh, yeah, you saw a clown have sex with your mom. Okay, whatever. You know, I'm thinking like that would stop me in my tracks, but to him, it's just, oh, okay, I'm a juggalo. That's that's what's important to me. Well, when you, you have know. friends named Butthole Bill, you probably hear stuff like that all the time, you know? <laughs> yeah, and they say it in such, they, they talk to each other in such, I can't really recite off the bat because it, it's so specific, the words they use and the phrases. Yeah, they, they have their use. own vernacular. They have their own vernacular, yeah, right. <laughs> like, they're listening to, man, put on that demo tape, that's the shit, and, you know, this and that. They're not talking like alien um from uh, Spring Breakers, the James Franco character, they're not speaking like white guy trying to speak uh, rapper. Uh, they do call each other ninja a lot uh, as a you know substitute for friend or brother or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't love that as much. It's pretty grating, but uh, accurate to how Juggalos talk at least. Yeah, yeah, they call each other ninja and and stuff like that. They uh, Silas raps pretty often in it. And uh, it, it's very much the horror rap type thing where he's like, uh, he's saying, oh, God, some of the lyrics were, I mean, they were ridiculous because it is the insane clown posse after all. I don't know if you've ever listened to any of their songs uh, besides Miracles or whatever. Uh, I remember they did a music video called Love Song uh, back in the late 90s. And it was an earworm for me. But at the same time, I found the lyrics very disturbing. It was about um, two people in love, a man and a woman, and uh, the the man was like, "I love you so much, I want to like kill people and kill you, or something." And it was like an Eminem song, but even early Eminem song, but even more disturbing than that. You know, like uh, he's like, uh, you know, I want to take your cat and stuff it in your mailbox and you know this and that. And I was like, "Oh my god, what are you talking about?" You know. But I guess the point of the song was how viscerally passionate the guy is. You know, it wasn't necessarily what he was doing. It was that that's how he feels when he's in love with this person. I guess that's the point. But at the time, it disturbed me. Uh, this movie kind of doesn't disturb me, at least not the Juggalo lifestyle stuff. You would think it would, especially when they enter. Uh, what's what's the the guy in the wheelchair's name? Uh, Skeletor or uh... <laughs> something like that. <laughs> something like that. No, it was uh, Scarecrow. Scarecrow. Yeah, that was his name. And you're they're building him up as like this this scary dude, right? You know, and when he's introduced, it, it's you know he he's he can't walk. He he needs assistance. Not that that doesn't mean like he can't be scary. The the dude definitely has a presence about him. You know that's that's very intimidating, but it it's like it um it just kind of flipped the script a little bit, you know, and uh, and they they took him very seriously because the dude's not just a drug dealer. The dude uh, apparently um, is into voodoo or some kind of juggalo voodoo. He believes his sister's breast milk will eventually cure him of his uh, will help him to walk again. And the movie goes into weird places. Is what I'm saying. But uh, he does like incantations and stuff, you know. It's 
it's really wacky but at the same time it all kind of fit in <laughs> so to well, speak he's also like singled out as not a real juggalo like yeah he was kicked out he was like excommunicated this movie is specifically post that era when like the fbi labeled juggalos as an official gang and there's a lot of blowback culturally to that yeah, as a matter of fact, Miles Doliak, the police, I keep saying Miles Doliak, the police officer guy who stops them, uh, he, he's like, a, you know, juggalos are, you know, were listed by the FBI as a gang. And, and the, the two dudes were, were like, well, no, that was a while ago. And we sued them. We sued the FBI about that. Well, when that happened in the press, there was a lot of rehabilitation of like juggalo culture as like something that's kind of weirdly wholesome in a roundabout way. Um, my favorite example of that was Nathan Rabin's book, You Don't Know Me But You Don't Like Me, which is specifically about Insane Clown Posse and Fish. He like went to both several Insane Clown Posse shows and like followed Fish on tour and wrote about the oh, subculture. Oh, Fish. Okay. Yeah. I, th- I thought you meant Fishing. No, no. Like Fish, the <laughs> band. And he like yeah, wrote yeah, about yeah. how everyone has these like knee-jerk reactions to the fans of those bands, but it's like without actually engaging with what the culture is or like experiencing it for yourself. And like, these are just people who are looking for an excuse for community. And uh, especially in St. Clown Posse's case, it's like people who come from like troubled family backgrounds, you know, a a lot of families with like generational addiction issues, poverty, abuse, and they find, you know, a healthier, bigger family at the gathering every year and they chant family over and over again family family and uh that that is the that is the position the movie's coming from it's like these characters do and say fucked up stuff all the time but they're kind of like wholesome knuckleheads who just never grew up past eighth grade and you kind of love them for being for being children who are in their 20s and 30s definitely and abuse does play a a big recurring uh hand in this film we were just talking about the content warnings indeed those things are talked about uh those things are in the air of this film and the two main characters you know have you know just as much past history with uh, abuse and neglect and uh drugs uh, in fact trey just got out of jail uh and uh they have as much of that as do the other characters that they meet, uh, especially the the villain of the movie, uh, who was this uh, uh, sheriff running for re-election in Mississippi. The movie takes place in Mississippi for the most part. They're driving from uh, New Orleans area to the gathering, but in order to get there, they have to get through the deep south of Mississippi, which... They, they take an off ramp. I have to talk about the location of this film as like a general topic. Yeah. Okay. It's strange. Cause like technically this is very close to like what my juggalo story would have been if I were a juggalo in yeah. that it starts in Chalmette where I grew up. I mean, I grew up down the road, but you know, the whole parish is pretty much Chalmette uh, when you're referring <laughs> When you're talking about to anybody who's not from there, you know, so I grew up, I grew up in Chalmette and I had one insane clown posse CD in the eighth grade that I purchased with, you know, allowance money or lawn cutting money or whatever. And if there were enough people around who wanted to like 
encourage that as like a subculture that I could get into. I could have very well have been a juggalo. The prison that the main character is released from in the first scene is the St. Bernard Parish Jail, which is like blocks away from where my mom lives right now. And it hit very close to home to like what would have been. But that did not happen because juggalos are kind of more of a northern phenomenon. Like, yeah, I'm sure there are insane clown posse fans all over the country, if not all over the world, that are very into it. But I think sort of the Midwest industrial belt is like where the strongest juggalo culture is. And yeah. it just felt kind of weird seeing like even the Fago, which um, is not exactly Fago. They, they call it juggalo juice in here. Like, <laughs> yeah, they, the they, can't, they can't say Fago. Right. right. So like even the, the Fago is not something you would see at a corner store in new Orleans or Mississippi. We have big shot here, you know? Yes. It, it's just like, um, I don't want to be pedantic and picky. It's just like almost this is like fantasy version of a South that doesn't really exist. I don't know about that. I mean, the Fago part. Yeah. But, uh, but they had to have that in the movie. Cause that's the, the juggalo juice. That's, you know, I mean, although it would have been amusing if he went in there and it's like, you ain't got no juggalo juice. You just got big shot. Now I'll just pretend this is like, yeah, if they did something like that, but, but I have been to places in the South and I'm not proud of this, but you know, because you, you have to stop at a at a road stop or something to gas up and get, you know, uh, snacks or whatever. But some of these places have Confederate flags in them. And you look at it and go, uh, you shake your head. But at the same time, you got to look around you and kind of go, well, you know, that's where I'm at. You know, I, I can't respond in the way that I would want to. I can't just go up to the guy who owns the place and say, fuck you. Yeah, you, know? <laughs> you know, I can't just do that. Uh, unless I'm a juggalo, maybe. But the juggalo guy doesn't even care about that. He's he's just like, hey, man, uh, you know, I'm a juggalo. You know, I'm I'm going to the gathering, and the guy's like, you're a gigolo. <laughs> you know, he doesn't get it. You know, he's just the gas station attendant. But uh, I do believe there are places like that. Oh, I'm not saying the like like sheriff corruption and like the abuse and things like that aren't the South. What I'm saying is that. I just don't think that there's that strong of a juggalo contingent here. Where, oh, like everywhere you go, you're going to run into more juggalos in their well, grease paint. This is, this is about two juggalos and that's their whole world. They see things that way. Yeah. I don't even mean it as a knock on the movie. It's like a fairy tale version of, of a South that doesn't really exist. Like I'm, I'm not yeah. saying that's bad. And if there were going to be juggalos in new Orleans, like as like a, you know, an entire cultural stronghold, it would be in Chalmette. So that's like perfect <laughs> placement within the city. I, I probably would find the comparable subculture to from Juggalos to New Orleans as the, the gutter punks, maybe, eh. you know, or crust punks or something like that. Not quite the same thing, but if you had to pick. No, I, I think it's more like the Metairie metal kids who still oh, okay. wear like the... Uh, the ball bearing like neck chains and like oh, go out man. and see like suplex, <laughs> like, you know, like Metairie trash metal scene, I think is like <laughs> juggalo culture here. Oh my God. Yeah. We're, we're talking all sorts of subcultures here in uh, in the area that we're either proud of or not proud of, or they just are, it's what it is. You well, know? I, I think it's just worth saying that I don't think that the specifics are like, reality here it is like a fanciful version of like juggalo culture in the south i mean even like 
the way that they use the you fucked up chant in the movie, I don't think is exactly accurate to juggalo culture. I, I like, love that though. Cause it reminded me of pro wrestling. It reminded me of ECW. Right. But like the difference is that when that happens in wrestling and when that happens at the gathering, it's not like a shaming thing. Like you it's fucked so up, get out of here. Yeah. It's like cute. Yeah. It's like, we we're all fuck ups together. That's why we're family. You fucked up and we're celebrating that. It's funny. And endearing to us and that's not how it's used in the movie maybe that was a mis- misinterpretation on the part of the filmmakers but the filmmakers i think got a lot of stuff right at least in terms of uh uh the general legend or lore of uh the juggalos even if it's just surface level i think they got i think they got a lot of it right but you're you're talking me you're talking to someone who dressed up as a juggalo for halloween during middle school and uh I, I even didn't get it right. Like I, I painted myself <laughs> like a juggalo. I dyed my hair like a juggalo, but I wore a limp biscuit shirt because that was the closest thing I had to that kind of costume, you know. And juggalos would hate limp biscuits so much. I mean, I would imagine like that kind of stuff. Would they? Like, I would imagine so, right? I don't know. It's it's the same kind of like rap, rap metal, boy, rap you know? rock, right? <laughs> no, well, no, it's it's a different thing, but. Uh, I remember at Woodstock 99, which I did not go to, but uh, I actually wanted to go to beforehand, you know, before it became what it became. Uh, but I bought the VHS copy of the uh, concert itself, or at least the highlights Snuff tape. Oh, <laughs> dude, there's, there's so much weird shit in that. Like, not just the concert, but the, they, they do, like, bits where they talk to the audience members, and a lot of them are really weird, as they should be, but they're but it, it, it's like a foreboding weird. It's like, you know, it's about to get bad, you know? But anyway, Insane Clown Posse were there. They performed like on the first night and uh, they're doing a song about, um, I think it's called Fuck the World. And uh, at one point they bring up Eminem and uh, uh, Violent J, I believe that's the, the one of the lead singers. He's like, I said, fuck Eminem. Yeah, he, he, he repeats himself a couple of times. Like, fuck Eminem. I said, fuck Eminem. Yeah, so that's where I think I'm thinking like Limp Biscuit. They probably, or maybe I'm thinking Slipknot. I don't know. Slipknot. They definitely did not like Limp Biscuit. Well, I, I could see like you're either a juggalo or you aren't. So like even yeah. the rapper in the main you know duo at the center of this movie, he's doing juggalo rap. Like he he's not in the Insane Clown Posse, but he's making kind of like a fanboy contribution to that culture yeah yeah they, they, they both dig it and this is this is their life this this is who they want to be this is who they are and um what i love to to get back into the movie uh is the whole role of uh acceptance that plays into it and freedom uh there's a revelation that comes in the middle of the movie about one of the characters that uh i did not see coming i did <laughs> oh you did okay well they mention it he he brings it up and and or the character brings it up and i thought to myself like wow you know it was just it was just brought up you know i think it's worth mentioning because it's not i don't know it it is like a scene where they reveal it but it's not hidden information because no yeah you're right there are references basically we're saying like one of the two men at the center of the film is trans yeah and there are references before that happens where he says like, you know, I raised funds to get my top surgery by having money stapled to my body at the gathering. 
Or, you know, I bought all these drugs that were going to sell the scarecrow by selling tea to gay bodybuilders. Basically saying, like, he gets testosterone prescribed to him and then sells them the bodybuilders. Like, it, it's not like a hidden part of his identity. It's very naturally right. hinted at throughout in his dialogue. But he doesn't say he's trans until halfway into the movie. What I'm getting at is it was kind of, it wasn't, yeah, it, you're right. It wasn't hidden to him and his and his best friend it wasn't hidden in their world because they knew about it and they dropped hints to the audience, but definitely the audience, or at least just for, and for me, uh, weren't clued in that much about it. Mostly because it's not totally, um, you know, it's, it's a little relevant in terms of the guys, you know, past and in terms of uh, what the movie's trying to say about the juggalo culture and how it's about acceptance and family and all that. And then of course, what it means to the, the female character, the, the, the woman they meet, the young woman, the juggalette, the juggalette. Yeah. What's her name? Uh, Eden, like the garden. <laughs> That's what she says. Kind of and, the worst uh, character in the movie, honestly, this like manic uh, pixie dream juggalette that like gives them something to do in manic, the third act. I wouldn't call her manic pixie, so to speak. Uh, she is weird though. Eden was a cool character. I, 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 well, not cool, but uh, she, I, I felt like she represented that whole, um, you know, again, someone who's been abused, someone who's struggling to be loved and looking for a family, can't escape the situation she's in. And then these two guys essentially come into her life and, you know, boom, there's, there, there it is. You know, it's, it's, it's like a, a traditional road trip movie uh, sequence. You know, they meet someone outside of their their little group, outside of their car, so to speak. And, uh, you know, it changes their lives. I just think the writing gets a little ropey and like strange in that sequence in her bedroom where the two main jugglers and the one juggalette are kind of trading their past. Like they're kind of trauma dumping on each other one at a time. And their backstories are so over the top that you're not sure whether it's supposed to be funny or sincere. And I don't even know that the movie needs to like clue you in on that, but it goes on for a long time. And it's like, either this is a very elaborate joke or it's kind of like lost the rhythm of what it was supposed to be doing. It's possible it loses the rhythm, but I didn't see it as a joke unless you see their dialogue and their vernacular as a joke, which it was at the beginning of the movie because you're just getting used to these characters and you're getting, you're getting uh, treated to their little world. Uh, which is a big world to them. But as the movie goes on and as you start to understand their language, it just becomes natural. It's like second nature, you know? And that scene did go on a bit long. I I will uh, definitely, I I do agree with that. And it did, by virtue of being long, it does confuse as to um, what the intent is, uh, joke or sincerity, you know? uh, and then to cap it off, she's like, so are we going to fuck? You guys want to yeah. fuck? And that's when the reveal of like one of the, the main trans, characters being yeah. trans comes out. And to the movie's credit, their trans identity has nothing to do with their family trauma. Like it's all about his grandmother needing daily medical care and not about how sad he is because he's trans. Like this is not that kind of movie. And oh, it's I like refreshing yeah. because he's just one of the guys in the main duo uh he's he's kind of like the paulie shore goofball jester <laughs> character if anything yeah I, I agree with that the paulie shore yeah that's a good 
that's a good uh, description, <laughs> buddy. Yeah, yeah. he kind of does that. He does that. I'm the squirrel. I'm the squirrely man. And he's he's the rapper too, which is very funny because like his he's like really over the top and boisterous, and his friend has to keep like apologizing for him. Like, I think the biggest laugh I got out of the whole movie was him rapping at the fried chicken place, and uh, on the way out, uh, his friends like kind of being like, "Thank you, the food was delicious." As they're being yeah, like, yeah, escorted to the oh, street. Oh my god yeah they're like so do you want like to go boxes and then they're walking out and, <laughs> and uh <laughs> i think i was like uh thank you the food was great it was delicious bye i mean that's that's like the main thing that really impressed me with the movie is that it's very funny for a movie on this budget level like there are so many failed comedies that you know scrape by on just like being charming to the friends of the filmmakers so like it's a fun room to be you know that that's my buddy on the screen like how cute and funny let's all laugh oh, but like this movie yeah, actually yeah. does earn genuine laughs pretty consistently throughout on top of like having these like sincere dramatic moments and like over the top gore gags like <laughs> it, it really does have like some pretty solid jokes it does every scene yeah. it does definitely I, I suppose the one aspect i wasn't sure about at first was uh the gathering itself cuz they're building up to this you know this the celebration and once they get there it's just it's like um they have all these establishing shots and b-roll throughout the movie of the gathering you know of what it's supposed to be you know representations and all that and then and i imagine that was actual footage from a gathering uh that they took but when they get there they they're just meeting in like someone's backyard almost you know is what it looks like and uh i guess that was for like you said licensing reasons maybe there is something associated with that where they can't quite or maybe just you know practical reasons like they yeah. can't get to the gathering and shoot it in a controlled way uh they could maybe do like an improv thing but maybe they knew their resources and and their talents and they knew like okay let's just do it this way instead of you know and also it does play into the whole road trip angle in that it's about the journey not the destination so much i will say i uh was there for the q a which i'd never stay for q a's but i was a little late so i was in the front row and it felt rude to leave yeah. uh, <laughs> okay and uh they did i, I really hate q a's but they did say like one of the main sources of inspiration for the film tonally um i don't even know if it was the director i feel like the producer um and one of the main actors said this um said that they really liked the movie family with um, Taylor Schilling a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that, but it's about the gathering of the juggalos and it's about this sort of like uptight businesswoman who finds out that her niece is a juggalo or a juggalette and is going to be running away to the gathering. And she has to like chase after her and uh, bring her back home. And she has to like go undercover as a juggalette herself to like ingratiate <laughs> herself with the culture. And that movie does have like a more extensive sequence at the gathering and has like a lot of jokes built into like filming in that chaotic environment. But yeah. that movie was made by, if not a studio, like the independent subdivision of a studio. Uh, and this uh, is, this is a completely independent, like micro budget movie. So like, you know, yeah, I, I did want to mention too Nathan tape. He, uh, he's the director. Uh, I don't believe he's a cinematographer, but he d has worked as a cinematographer uh, most recently in a Miles Doliak film uh, called Open. And I suppose that there must have been some kind of crossover, like maybe they're friends 
Nathan and, and Miles, because Miles is in the movie, and Jeremy London is in the movie. He makes a quick cameo as uh, a guy buying breast milk, and uh, he just he's just in and out, you know, that quick. He <laughs> he stars in Open. He's he's one of the main stars in that film, and uh, Open is like this uh, comedy anti musical, uh, which is very different from Miles. Miles normally does like dark humor stuff and um very different from miles's previous work but nathan was the cinematographer on that and I, it got me thinking like maybe the productions were at the same time or close enough to where they could organize some uh crossover very interesting um the only other thing about off-ramp that i'll say is the uh climax very quickly and uh devolves into schlock but then it pays off rather well in that uh, gory surgical moment, uh, <laughs> which yeah. I can imagine a lot of people, like you said, walked out or were disgusted by. But I think even that moment paid off with a very with a rather beautiful dialogue between the two characters as that was happening. Well, I like that the movie goes there because if it wasn't gross and juvenile and over the top and a bit much and maybe even tacky, then like. Would a juggalo like it? You know, like I think this movie is made kind of with it's with, it's made with anybody with like a gross out, like you said earlier, Farley Brothers style sense of humor. You know, will enjoy it. But I think it does matter that like a juggalo would enjoy this movie, and I think I think it kind of achieves that goal. Even compared to that Taylor Schilling movie I was just talking about, Family. I don't think juggalos would like that movie. That's kind of like an outsider's perspective on the juggalo culture even though it's it's just as like rehabilitative to their reputation as this one is like it, it's just as like um warmly accepting of juggalos as like a found family as this one is um yeah. this movie actually does feel like it was made with a juggalo mo- audience in mind a little bit and see that that's that's the part i really appreciated was especially that that was the apex scene for that because right you know they they at one point mentioned the horror rap genre and they say it's it's not really about aggression or anger or the things that are being said. It's specifically, it's a it's like its own little horror movie in chunks. And what's behind that? Not necessarily the the specific lyrics like I want to fuck your brains out or some shit like that. You know, uh, <laughs> which you would think an outsider listening to that, oh my god, what is this? But to a juggalo, they get it. You know, it's it's like second nature. You know, it's another it's a language that they they speak and understand. And in that scene that in the climax, everything leading up to it was entirely fucked up. It was schlock and uh, and a little over the topness. But I think that was a that was the intent. But then when you the, what I'm getting at with the uh, surgical gore scene is uh, the two characters are playing it up like they're heroes. You know, they're they're and they even say it. Well, I'm a hero. We're heroes. You know, and and uh, they're proud about it. And they're and they're they've just basically done a miracle, so to speak, in a gross way. But they did it. And uh, and like you were saying, a juggalo would get this movie. I would agree with that 100. percent They see this almost like that sequence almost like as a horror. Most people would see that as a horror, but they see it uh, as a beauty. Because it ends beautifully, you know. There's something good that came out of this very dark place, and 
that's a nice hat trick, I think, you know, that for the filmmakers to pull off, for the cast to pull off, for everyone to pull off. It was it was very well done, that bit, even if it was gross as hell. And I did ask Nathan Tape a question during the q and I put that did you? press okay. pass to work, you know, <laughs> try to justify my presence in the room. But I asked him if uh, he had any interaction with the Insane Clown Posse and if they had any, like, reaction or feedback to the movie and basically the answer was no in a sort of roundabout way but what he said was like juggalo culture belongs to the juggalos i I think i remember that word for word because it was very clearly stated and that like you know the, the movie's not for the insane clown posse the movie is for their fans who love this culture and it's kind of like a love letter to them yeah have you ever actually seen an insane clown posse direct to video movie no, I, I am morbidly curious about Big Money Hustlers because I know that one has like <laughs> a reputation as a fan favorite, uh, oh, but I have not seen yeah. it yet. I've seen their wrestling show, which was Juggalo Championship Wrestling. Mm. It's not very good, as you can imagine. It reminded me of like XPW back in the day, how that was very dirty and you know just gross to watch even if they what they were doing was technically wrestling it was like violent wrestling not i don't mean deathmatch like in a in how the japanese do it i mean deathmatch and how a porno company would run it which is exactly what xbw was it was run by extreme associates and juggalo champion shit wrestling while it was run by insane clown posse who have been very involved in pro wrestling themselves Shaggy, Too Dope, and uh, Violent J. <laughs> the two guys, the two important guys in the St. Clown Posse were in WCW. I think they did a little stint in the WWF. Probably uh, in that one stretch where like every single person in the world was in the NWO all of a sudden. Like, yes, they just brought yes. out new celebrities and like wrestlers from different contingents. Uh, I think Master P was even in the NWO. Right, point. right, right. <laughs> we were probably in the NWO, just don't remember. Very much so, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I ever wore an NWO shirt, but I think I had Stone Cold shirt at one point. But at the time, I wasn't even a Stone Cold fan. I just was trying to ape off of wrestling because it was very popular. He had great shirts. That skull looks so cool. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> some some wrestling shirts are kind of tacky, though. You know, quite frankly, uh, the Taz shirt was great. You would see it at Hot Topic all the time, but then you would see like uh, like the WWF promoting shirts like for Rikishi, and it would say Rikishi Fatu, and then on the back it would say and your mother too. Mm. And I was like, oh, I did buy a uh, Bray Wyatt T-shirt to commemorate that John Cena match we referenced earlier. Uh, Cause it was my favorite thing that ever happened in wrestling. And I'm very glad <laughs> I bought that when I did. What was it? The, was it a fiend shirt? Or yes. It it's a- him in the fiend mask. Uh, you know, the Tom Savini mask design. Oh God. That was such a great character. The fiend. It was insane. Flexing his bicep. And it says, you can't hurt me or something like that. Or you can't hurt it. <laughs> Pretty great. That was awesome. Yeah. I remember. I, I'll never forget when he, they introduced the fiend. You know, it was like, what the hell is the fiend? And then he comes out. It's like, it's like fucking metal. And, you know, he's got the the, the head in his uh, lamp and he's coming out and it looks like, like we're about to get a horror movie or something in a wrestling ring. And it was nuts. And then he wins the, the universal title and then he drops it to Goldberg. Bummer. Yeah. But then he had a, one of the greatest wrestling matches ever, uh, theatrical wrestling matches ever with John Cena. 
Yeah. And I love the build up to that. They had they they just they had a um confrontation on SmackDown before the pandemic hit. And uh he Fiend just Cena's Cena, there and he's like, I think I'm gonna skip WrestleMania. Thanks, guys. And he's walking to the back, and then the lights go dark. The fiend comes in, he's right behind Cena. Cena slowly looks over his shoulders. Fiend points at the WrestleMania sign. Cena looks at it, looks back, and nods. I was like, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And then they do the match, and the match is, you're not expecting it at all. You're not expecting it to go inside Cena's psyche. You're expecting it to be in the ring in a wrestling match, you know, like like traditionally. And then they just go inside his memories, and, and it's like a nightmare. And it's just like, whoa. It just blows your mind. It's like the Matrix. That is some psychedelic pro wrestling filmmaking. <laughs> Possibly the greatest short film of the past decade. <laughs> I, I've got that that saved on my YouTube account. Hell that, yeah. That under under the category of movies. Because that <laughs> is very much a little movie. It's 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 really it's insane. I know we just got off topic from off ramp, but I, there there is some some loose tissue there between the fiend and the juggalos a little bit. A little bit. I mean he he is kind of a horror clown figure a little bit. Yeah. I remember that they had they were selling the merchandise of the um replica title belt that he had which was just his mask stretched over the title belt also designed by tom savini yeah so cool. yeah <laughs> it's not awesome they didn't go nearly as far with the, the fiend as they could have you know that last match he had uh that i remember with randy orton at wrestlemania the next year um they were suggesting something with alexa bliss but then it never really paid off because I think they both got injured or something. Yeah, they kind of gave his gimmick to her for a while, and it was not a good fit. I kind of missed her like middle school bully era when that was happening. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a good bit, but it was very sad for for Bray and his family. Oh yeah, that whole situation. He had, he just was such an immense talent and very young. Very young. Yeah, makes me very sad. Well, I don't think Off Ramp has a distributor yet. No, if I had to I guess, it is one of those things that like eventually you'll see on Tubi or Hoopla or something like that when it gets distribution, maybe Amazon Prime. It's very funny. If you have any interest in Juggalo culture, uh, it's a good anthropological piece that's not <laughs> afraid to get its hands dirty and like rough it up among the Juggalos. Yes, I, I like that anthropological. Uh, that's that's a, such a great descriptor. I like that. What I like about it, though, in the context of a film festival thing is like, I was a few minutes late to the screening, not like very late, but like I got there right when it was supposed to start and it was a full room. I had to sit in the very front row and everyone was laughing at most of the jokes and reacting audibly to the gross out gore. And it was like a hot ticket that one night, you know? And yeah. I really love that about film festivals in general is like creating this scarcity and this excitement um, that like you have to go see this movie before it goes away. And like there are so many great movies that play around town every week that I go to and it's completely empty. Just like nobody in the cinema it's, uh, except it's me sad. and a few other weirdos. And it's very cool to have this like ceremonious ritual every year where people like actually venture out to see something small and under marketed like this um, and give it like yeah. the attention it deserves. And uh, yeah, I really love that the film fest programmed this as kind of like a closing out 
celebration. It was a very fun way to end the festival. And I'm very glad that that many people took a chance on it, despite that laundry list of um, graphic content warnings on the main <laughs> page. Hey, they, 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 they tried to warn people, like, hey, you might, you know, this might not gel with you, so to speak. You know? And, you know, they took their chances. They freed up some seats. Yeah, I probably could have moved back and saved my eyes a little bit. <laughs> so what coverage are you doing for the festival and where can people find your reviews? Uh, well, I will be doing, um, as well as sharing this very podcast, I will be doing uh, a couple of movie reviews uh, on my blog, moviegoing.rocks. Uh, also can be found at moviegoing.substack.com. So they will be reviews for some of the short films, the, the two highlights that I mentioned, plus a couple of others, and of course, off-ramp. Uh, I'm going to be doing some, um, some excuse me, a, a newsletter, which is going to be a, a compilation of movie reviews from other critics across the Hollywood South region. Not that we have a terrible amount of them anymore, but we, we do have some, and uh, I want to kind of share that those links and those articles around and uh, kind of do my part to bring attention, including your reviews, you know, uh, which you do quite, quite a bit every week. And I really appreciate it. I really love them. And I appreciate your organizational skills. Like you really do have a very clear idea of who's out there doing what in a way that I don't, I see you bringing up local filmmakers and local writers, um, but I would not have found otherwise like, yeah, it's a, it can be a little little bit of a challenge, but I, I think simply from just talking to people and and remember, I, I don't know if I have a good memory or if it's just I have a good memory for little details. And whenever the something comes up in my regular life, I then instantly recall, oh, yeah, that guy did this, you know, and then one thing leads to another, leads to another Google search, leads to this, and then you discover a whole new movie and a whole new crew of filmmakers so uh, I, I would recommend to everyone just use certain keywords in your google searches and uh, you can find all sorts of crazy stuff that uh, you can open yourself up to or you can save time by finding it in the movie going with bill newsletter <laughs> well, thank you <laughs> i like that yeah i would appreciate all your listeners and readers to come over to moviegoing.rocks and see what i'm up to Music is a lot like love, it's all a feeling And it fills the room from the floor to the ceiling I see miracles all around me Stop and look around, it's all astounding Water, fire, air and dirt Fucking magnets, how do they work? And I don't wanna talk to a scientist Y'all motherfuckers lying and getting me pissed Solar eclipse and vicious weather 15,000 juggalos together And I love my mom for giving me this time On this planet, take nothing for granted I seen a caterpillar turn into a butterfly Miracles ain't nothing to lie Shaggy's little boys look just like Shaggy And my little boy looks just like daddy Miracles each and everywhere you look and nobody has to stay where they put This world is yours for you to explore It's nothing but miracles beyond your doors The dark carnival is your invitation To witness that without explanation Take a look at this fine creation And enjoy it better with appreciation Crows, ghosts, the midnight coast The wonders of the world, mysteries the most Just open your mind and it ain't no way To ignore the miracles of every day And that's real, and that's real Magic everywhere in this bitch. Do you notice and recognize miracles?
all around you, you don't even know it. Are you 